Turn to James chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. James chapter 1, as we finish up this first section in the book of James. When we lived in Virginia, uh, before we moved to Michigan in 2017, we had a, a bit bigger yard, a little bit more land. It wasn't huge, but we had about half an acre, and we lived in a, a neighborhood that was a lot more rural than the one we live in now. Uh, we had huge oak trees in our yard, uh, probably 25 or 30 massive oak trees. Um, cleaning up the leaves in the fall was just awful. And uh, so anyway, lots of big trees. Our neighborhood had big trees. And one of the things that happens when you have um, trees like that is that we had squirrels and chipmunks coming out of our ears. They were everywhere. And with the squirrels and chipmunks, we had some problems with rodents chewing through the Freon lines on our minivan. Now, I had never heard of this happening before, but this is a thing, apparently. And so our AC on our van stopped working, and I took the van to the shop, and the guy said, I've never seen anything like this. Something destroyed your Freon lines and chewed right through them. And so I paid the money, which was a substantial amount, to have new lines put in, Freon put in, and everything fixed. And in about two or three months, the, the AC went out again. And so I did the only thing in response to that that I knew to do, and I declared war on all squirrels and chipmunks. So I will leave the strategy that I took with the squirrels for another time and another discussion but I began learning how to build a homemade chipmunk trap. This is absolutely a true story. I won't explain exactly how the trap worked or put a diagram up, but I will say that it involved a tiny ramp, a five gallon bucket with about six inches of water in it, a paint stirrer, and loads of nuts and bird seed. Now, of course, in this trap, the key element in the whole thing was the, the bait. It was the nuts and the bird seed that were piled in a certain spot. And what you have to do, obviously, is you have to tempt and lure the chipmunk to put him or herself in a precarious situation. And that's what I tried to do with this bait. And let me tell you, it worked to perfection. There were some doubters in my family but I came home one day from lunch and had discovered that my trap worked and I was jubilant. Now, here's the reality for you and I. We've been talking about adversity over the last few weeks. And the reality is, is that any test or any trial, as James puts it, can become an opportunity for temptation. It can slide over that line from a test or a trial to become something that lures us and tempts us to sin. God has designed trials and brought trials into our lives, allowed those to happen to us to sanctify us and to grow us in spiritual wholeness. And that's the, that's the goal, according to James chapter 1. But what happens is, is these adversities come into our lives and our sinful hearts latch on to those trials and they are lured and enticed by desire, by our sinful nature, and they pull us toward an unbelieving response. 
And then we give into temptation. And the trial becomes a temptation to sin. And it becomes an opportunity for us to doubt the Lord and to turn away from him. And I'm convinced that most of the time when we encounter difficulty, we don't think about our hearts. Our eyes are focused on the difficulty, on the trial, on the adversity, and we don't consider what's going on in our own hearts, and we allow the adversity to become the opportunity for sin and temptation. And it becomes something that we, we use against the Lord, and we blame him for it. And so this week, we're going to spend our last section of our last sermon in this section of James talking about the heart, talking about what's going on internally in the midst of a trial or an adversity. So let me remind you where we've been, and then we'll get to our, our fourth practice here. So we're looking at four practices necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom. Four practices necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom, James 1, verses 2 to 15. The first one of these is in verses 2 to 4. We did this a couple weeks ago, but you are to, we are to cooperate with God's purpose in the midst of trials. Let me read these verses to you. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James is very clear, you and I, all of us, are going to encounter difficulties in our lives. It's going to happen, and they're going to come to us in all shapes, all sizes, and all degrees of pain and struggle. But he's also clear in these verses that we can look as believers through the trial. Instead of looking at it, we can look through it and we can see what God is doing in us in the midst of the difficulty. Our faith is tested, and when our faith is tested, it becomes the opportunity to grow in endurance and steadfastness. And as we remain faithful in the midst of that trial, all sorts of sanctification happens. Sin areas are chipped away. Virtue, habits are developed that honor the Lord. And the result of that, you can see in verse 4, is that we grow to maturity, completeness, and to the point where we're lacking in nothing. That's the first practice. Cooperate with God's purpose. The second practice is found in verses 5 through 8, and we looked at this last week. And you can see the connection as we get into verse 5 between uh, verses 4 and 5. First, or the, the second practice here, I forgot to mention that, is call out for God's wisdom by faith. So cooperate with God's purpose and then call out for God's wisdom by faith. And you can see the connection here. Look at verse 4. You're lacking. The goal is that you would be lacking in nothing. And then verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. We want to be mature, we want to be lacking in nothing, but the reality is, is that we are all lacking in so many areas, and we're all lacking in particular in wisdom. We specifically don't know how to approach trials, and we don't know what to do in order to find joy in the midst of trials, and in order to let steadfastness have its perfect work. It's full effect. It's hard. It's difficult to do that. We don't know exactly how to approach it, and so, so we struggle. And James says here that 
What we need to do is when we know that we lack in wisdom, we need to turn to the Lord and we need to ask him for wisdom. And when we do that, he will give it. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God gives wisdom to those who ask in faith because of who he is. Because he is a God who is devoted to our good, and he's a God who gives without reproach. He's not going to mock. He's not going to begrudge us for asking. He actually loves it when his children come to him in faith and ask. And that is the posture that James tells us we need to have, verses 6 through 8 here. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God does not hold back wisdom when we come to him in faith and ask in confidence. Our third practice is found in verses 9 through 11. Consider your circumstances. These verses may seem like they're sort of stuck in the middle of this discussion at random, but they actually continue the theme of approaching adversity. And what James is doing in these verses is teaching us to assess our situation, to consider our circumstances, and then to look through our circumstances to the God who is at work behind them. And so there are two types of people here. Verse 9, let the lowly brother, the poor, the one who is not high on the ladder socially, who doesn't seem to matter in the eyes of the world, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. If you are lowly in the eyes of the world, you can rejoice that God is at work sanctifying you through that difficulty. You are loved and you are valued by him. But then the rich, in verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, the rich person, the person who has social capital, who seems to matter in this world, who also is a believer, that person can look through his wealth and not be dependent on his wealth, and he can understand that it's all going to fade away, that his position socially, his position in the culture is not the most important thing about him. The rest of verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is a a loose grip on our material goods. We like to have them. It's nice, but ultimately They're not the most important thing about us. And having this sort of loose grip and understanding the true nature of material goods that they're going to pass away actually even helps us in the midst of adversity. It helps us not to be plagued with anxiety and worry over our material goods or our status in the world. And so those are the first three practices that we've looked at. And our last one is found in verses 12 to 15. And here's where James goes to our deepest desires and to our heart and he's going to deal with what we long for at the most fundamental level and he's going to help us to understand the potential danger of sinful desires capitalizing on adversity and using those times 
as opportunity to sin. And so the last practice or encouragement that James gives us here is to check your heart response. Be aware of what's happening inside of you. If you look at verse 12, you can see here that James returns to some of the same language that he used in verses 2 to 4. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so you can see the word steadfast and the word trial there. It's the same words that he used up in verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so he's taking us back. He's continuing this same theme that he's been in the whole time of approaching adversity. And once again, here in verse 12, in a similar way to verses 2 to 4, he's encouraging steadfastness. He's encouraging faith in the midst of trials. And he does that here by directing us to two promises that God makes. There are two promises in verse 12. The first one of these promises is carried by this this first word, blessed. I mean, this is a promise for us. And when you read that word blessed, I know it's easy to hear that word and think that what that means is that there's a divine approval happening of some action that I'm partaking in. And there, there is a word for that in both the Hebrew Old Testament and in the New Testament, but it's not this word. This word is not talking about God's perspective on the way we're living. The word that James uses here is the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes, that begins all the Beatitudes. And it's actually the same word that is used in Psalm 1 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who... Right? And it goes on to, to explain our engagement and how blessing comes from the word of God, from engaging with the word of God. And so this word doesn't mean divine approval. This word is more focused on a temporal life that is well lived, that's flourishing. And this temporal life is lived well and in a satisfying way because it is filled with wisdom. I mean, this is a word that is used in a context of wisdom, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I mean, if you remember, I think it was the beginning of this year, maybe last year, we did a quick series on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And if you remember from that, those Beatitudes are teaching us how to live with God's wisdom. I mean, those are are statements of a life well-lived, and it's well-lived because it's filled with God's perspective on the world, with wisdom. And that's the same thing in Psalm 1. That psalm is teaching us wisdom to live well in this life as as God intends us to live. And so in verse 12 here, what James is saying is that a life well lived, a life filled with wisdom, comes from someone who looks at their trials and they're able to remain steadfast in the midst of those trials. They're able to endure by faith in the midst of adversity. Now, as we saw all the way back in verses 2 to 4, we talked about the, the promise of temporal benefits through, through trials, right? In verse, verse 2, it says, count it all joy. I mean, this is something that's happening in us now. The sanctification that God is working in us is happening now. It's not just in the future. And that's what James is saying here in verse 12. There is a temporal benefit to approaching trials with endurance and through wisdom. 
But there's not only a temporal benefit. There's also something to be expected in the future. There's a future benefit to approaching adversity in the right way. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For, and here's the the eschatological or the eternal benefit. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is something that is promised in several New Testament passages. And I won't go through all of these, but I want to show you that this is tied to endurance in this life, to patience, to continuing to trust God even when it's difficult. Revelation chapter 2, to one of the churches, Pastor Marcel preached through this passage Uh, all of these dealing with the churches in Revelation over the last couple years. But here's what this one says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You can see there it's tied to testing, to tribulation, and to faithfulness. And then another passage, Paul speaks to believers everywhere. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This is that crown. In Greek and Roman culture, this was not a a crown like the Queen of England wears. In Greek and Roman culture, this was a wreath. It was leaves that were woven together and were given to someone. Someone who maybe won an athletic competition, who competed in the games in Corinth, and they won the prize, and they came in first place. They were able to endure. They had self-control. And so they win the competition and receive this crown, this wreath. This also could have been given to someone who the state, the city, or maybe even the whole Roman Empire recognized as someone who had given extraordinary service to to the state. And so they were given a wreath or a crown. The basic idea here is this is a reward for someone who was appreciated for exceptional service. Now, when you think about that and the promise to believers of receiving a a reward, a crown of life for endurance, we tend to shy away from from that. And it kind of doesn't really match with the way we think it works. Heavenly rewards. We don't think that there's something about it that makes us go, I don't think we should be motivated by rewards in heaven for service on earth. And I I get it. There is a way that our sinful hearts can misuse the the prospect of reward, and it can become self-centered and competitive and, and all of that. But the New Testament does not shy away from the promise, God's promise, to reward those who are faithful in their service to him. It's everywhere in the New Testament. There there will be a reward to those who are faithful, who endure, and who remain in a position of trusting the Lord. And here, the crown is literally the crown of life. It's the crown that is life. 
And so the end game here, the end reward when you endure is that you will spend eternity with the Lord in his life. You will have eternal life with him. It proves the reality of your faith when you persevere in the midst of trials. And you'll experience what is true life for all eternity. So you have the temporal benefit of a flourishing of well-being. And you've got the eternal benefit of endurance, receiving the crown, which is life, with the Lord for all eternity. But both of those rewards only come based on the proper heart motivation. Look at the end of verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Love for God enables endurance. I mean, that's the bottom line. How do we make it? How do we endure? How do we continue to trust and to remain steadfast even when it's so hard? And everything seems to be crumbling around us. Love. Love for God enables endurance. It's the same idea in James 2. If you look over there, James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Love for God fortifies. Love strengthens. Love endures. But when we enter a time of adversity, it is very easy, and all of us have experienced the temptation to fall apart and to not endure, and to not endure because in some ways we really don't love God and we really don't trust him. And so often, when we enter a time of adversity, rather than continuing to endure and trust in God, out of love for him, we tend to blame him for what's happening to us. We tend to accuse him of bringing this difficulty into our lives and of causing us to sin and be be anxious and be angry over what's happening. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Now, the word here that he's using, tempted, is the same word that's translated trial in verses 2 to 4. And so that makes this a little bit tricky. But if you remember, when we were in verses 2 to 4, we talked about how trials come to us from two directions. There are external circumstances that happen to us. We're in the midst of a a global pandemic right now. Everything's crazy. And so that's an external trial or time of adversity that's coming to us. But there's also internal struggles and difficulties that happen in our hearts. And so it's the same word that is used here and translated in two different ways, trials and temptations. And the word actually covers all of that. Everything from trials over here to temptations over here. And so here's what happens. And I think here's what James is saying. When when adversity comes into our lives, God brings that adversity. He is sovereign over all. And James is not shying away from that. 
And so everything is under the Lord's hand and adversity comes into our lives. God allows that to happen. And he does that in order to strengthen us and to sanctify us. But then our sinful hearts respond and they misuse that time of trial. And rather than finding joy and looking to the work that God is doing, they turn that trial into an opportunity to sin. And we respond in the wrong way. One author that I read summed this up very clearly, and I thought it would be helpful to read this to you. It's a little long, but that's okay. I think you can see it on the screen. James knows that a test can be taken two ways. We can view it as a trial and turn to God for aid, so we persevere. Or we can read it as a tragedy or as a senseless accident or as a failure on God's part to love and protect us. Worse yet, some who meet trials blame or attack God for them, accusing him of malice. They say he tests them too severely, pushing them towards sin so they will fall. When they face tests, they do not endure but give up. Believing failure is inevitable, they do fail, and then seek someone to blame. God is tempting me, they say. He is leading me to ruin. And that's why James addresses this. This is a very pastoral response to trials and adversity because he knows our hearts are going to be tempted to go there. And so he says, look, when you encounter trials, don't say God is tempting me. Why? Look at the rest of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not incite us to sin. He does not tempt us to sin. God is not trying to undermine our faith. He doesn't want us to disobey him. And he doesn't incite us to sin because of his character, because he is good, as we talked about earlier in James 1. You could say it like this, God is not temptable. You, you can't tempt God to sin. He's not prone to sin. And because of that, he is not going to tempt others to go astray either. And so, when we know this about God, when we see the reality of trials, when we know our heart's propensity to blame him, to say he's the one tempting us to sin, we need to understand what's actually going on in our hearts when we're pulled toward a sinful response. We need to understand that when adversity happens, something is going on in our hearts, and we need to check our heart's response to that. And we need to clearly understand the process of temptation. Why do we sin? What's going on? What gets us to the point where we sin? And that's what James goes on to explain here in verses 14 and 15. Let me read these to you, and then we're going to go back and work through them piece by piece. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there are three major pieces to this process, and this is so helpful to understand for us in every aspect of our daily lives, particularly when it comes to, to responding to trials. 
Look at verse 14. So you can see here that he's dealing with each individual person, right? But each person is tempted. He's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's it's something that happens inside of each individual person. The temptation does not come from a difficulty outside of you. It's something that's happening in your life. Each person is tempted when he's lured by his own desire. And so the first step in this three-step process involves being lured by your desire. And you can see here that the deepest root in this whole process is desire. And this is the the bottom level. This is the foundation. This is where it starts. Every sin, every temptation starts here in your desires. What happens is that our hearts long for something. They crave something. Our hearts want what they want. And the illustration that he gives here is that we have these desires deep in our hearts that drive us and we are lured by those desires. Something is attractive to us. And that word lure is a fishing metaphor. I mean, that's what James is, is saying here. And you know, that, I mean, it's, it's, this is obvious, right? If you've ever gone fishing, you know how this works. The bait is set. Fish are attracted to the bait. They are drawn to it. I'm not a great fisherman or even do it that often. But when I was young, we would go to my grandmother's house. She lived on a farm in the middle of Virginia. And we used to fish at this nasty, nasty pond in the middle of a cow pasture. And it was gross, but we loved it because this tiny little pond was stocked with all of these gigantic catfish. And it was the coolest thing for little kids in the world. And what we would do is we would go out to this pond and we would take a bucket of dog food and we would throw the dog food out on the surface of the water and instantaneously there would be tons of huge catfish just you know, feeding frenzy on the surface of the water. And so it was very simple. You just put a piece of dog food on your hook and throw it out there and just wait. And everybody got to catch a huge catfish. The fish were lured. They were drawn. They were enticed by the bait. It's it's a very simple process. We all understand it, but somehow I think we don't translate this process to our own hearts and to our own temptations. When we sin, when we're tempted to sin, we don't think something is attractive to me. It's drawing me out. My heart is desiring something. I've talked to you before about St. Augustine, who is one of the greatest teachers in the history of the church. Very, very influential. Uh, He was uh, raised and did his ministry in northern Africa in the 300s and early 400s, and his writing is still massively influential in the church today. I just read a biography of his, and Augustine taught that the very center of the human being, what makes us do what we do, is our desires. Now, I know we, we live in a scientific age, and so I have no doubt that every person listening to me thinks, I am rational. 
I act because I get facts, and then I respond to those facts in a rational way. I don't act out of my emotions or out of my desires. And that's what we all think, but we've been duped. At the core level, what James says here is that we act and we are attracted to things because we want something. And that's how it works. That's how it works for good and for evil. And in this biography I read of Augustine, here's how the author summarized his view of why we do what we do. Delight is the only possible source of action. Nothing else can move the will. Therefore, a man can act only if he can mobilize his feelings, only if he is affected by an object of delight. Now, certainly what you think about factors into what you delight in. We're not mindless, desiring beings. We have a brain that works with our emotions, but the bottom line is, and James says here, our desires are what cause us to act. And so the root problem in temptation is that our hearts are disordered. We want the wrong things, or we want the right things, but in the wrong way or in the wrong amount. And so these sinful desires draw us and lure us toward sin. And that's the first step in this process. The second step is found at the beginning of verse 15. Look there. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. He's obviously using an illustration here of a woman who is pregnant. And the desire here brings us to action. And so here's what happens. We want something, and that desire causes us to figure out how we can act on it. How can we get what we want? We're lured by something and we want it, and so we figure out a way to act on it. And oftentimes, figuring out a way to act on it is not rational at all. Now, what James is not saying here And some people have read this to be saying, he's not saying that the desire for sin is morally neutral. He's not saying, okay, well, you're tempted and the desire for sin is maybe good or bad, but when you actually act on it, that's when it becomes sin. That's not what he's saying here. God makes it quite clear throughout Scripture that the desire for sin is itself part of our fallen nature. So in the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, Don't covet. Covetousness is in and of itself sin. The desire for someone else's property is sin. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches that to lust, desire a woman who is not your wife, is sin on its own, even if you never act on that desire with your body. So the desire in and of itself comes from our sinful nature, but the point James is making here is that when we want something and we're lured and attracted by those sinful desires, the natural result of that is that we will act on those desires. Our sinful nature leads us to commit sinful acts. Our desires take root in our hearts, they 
They grow there and they cause us to eventually figure out a way to act. You can see this process in Genesis 3. It's amazing, right? Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, remember Augustine? Our delight is the only thing that moves us to act. That it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They acted on their delight and their desire. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They acted on their desires, and it culminated in the third step of this process. Look at the rest of verse 15 in James. When it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the end result of sin. It's the culmination of the process. The process begins in our desires. We're lured by those desires. We sin, and sin leads to death, which is destruction and disharmony. In this passage, it ends here with death in verse 15. But if you go back up to this section, verse 12, this begins with the blessing of flourishing and the promise of life. When we trust the Lord and obey him and endure trials, it brings a life of wisdom and well-being and flourishing and completeness. But when we give in to our sinful desires and act on those desires, the end result of that in verse 15 is that it brings forth death, the opposite result. You can see this in so many other passages, but Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. An act of sin, a desire for sin, is never in isolation. It leads us somewhere. It leads us toward more sin or toward more completeness and sanctification. Sinful desires and acts create grooves in our character, and they harden us into consistent Sinners. Another author put it like this. When we indulge our sinful desires, sin becomes a pattern and eventually a life-dominating force. And it ends in death. In other words, what happens here is we become enslaved to sin and crushed under its weight. And so... Here's what I would say to sort of summarize our engagement with James and this very important discussion of temptation here. Be aware of what you want. Be aware of what you want. Be on the alert for enticement to sin. What is your heart drawn toward? What bait lures you effectively? 
Is it power? Is it control? Is it comfort? Is it security? Is it the approval of others? Is it pleasure? There's some bait that lures you and entices you and your desires want that and you can be tempted to follow it to sin. But know the end result of following those desires towards sin. It's death. It's the fracturing of your life and your character and your relationships which culminates in an eternal separation from God. And so in these verses, James wants us to check our hearts in the midst of adversity. You can operate out of love for God that trusts him and says, I'm looking through the trial and I see what God is doing and it's hard, it's not easy, it's difficult. And sometimes I do not want to be under this trial, but I know that God is good and I need his wisdom and I love him and so I trust him. Or... When adversity comes, we can doubt his goodness. And we can think that he's a God of reproach and he'll be frustrated with us if we ask him for wisdom. And we can begin to blame him for trials. And we can say, God is making this too hard. How do I know he's good? He is tempting me to sin. And our own desires create sin in our hearts and draw us toward a wrong response. And my hope is that the promises of verse 12, the promise of of well-being and flourishing spiritually in this life, and the promise of the crown of life, eternity with God when we endure, showing the reality of our faith, my hope is that those two promises will drive you and encourage you to love God and to endure in the midst of adversity. Let's pray. Father, we we need these words. We are not often careful with our own hearts. I mean, you tell us in Proverbs that out of the heart flows the issues of life. We live out of our desires and our hearts and our will, and so we need careful attention to what's going on internally, Lord. And so I pray that you would help folks today to be able to to look at their hearts and to examine what they want and to examine whether they're truly trusting you in the midst of adversity, loving you, and understanding your character. We need your wisdom to do all of this work in our hearts, Lord, and we thank you for it. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.